Brother Stephen, it is so good to have you. Won't you put your hands together? Welcome, Stephen. Open your hearts. Thank you. Thank you, my brother. Thank you. Thank you. Well, this is great. Um, I'm going to read a little of Ephesians to you. But let me just encourage you. When you study a letter, if, if you've received a letter, anybody receive an email from a friend, maybe from a very good friend, do you just read a paragraph? How much do you read? Right. So when you read Paul's letters, don't just read a chapter. Read the whole thing. Ephesians is six chapters. It'll take you half an hour. And maybe, you know, if you're a sl really slow reader, 40 minutes, all right? That's fine. You know, some of us are slower than others. That's all right. 40 minutes is good. And, uh, and read it in different translations. So I'm going to read an, a modern translation to you. This is one of my uh, favorite theologians, Tom Wright, N.T. Wright, and he's written profoundly about volumes of things. He's prolific. And um, he's done a, a translation of the New Testament because here, as well as I, we, I, you know, I believe we need to have variety of different ways of looking at things. And we, we need to use words and language that are approachable. And often we end up with a translation that we can use and it's good and it's accurate, but we don't, we don't never use another one. And I really encourage you to read it in two or three different translations and make sure you've got a modern one. New Living's very good. I like that. I've been using that a bit. And, uh, and, and read it several times because then you'll get the context. And you can, after you've read it through once or twice, beginning to end, then you can take some time chapter by chapter. But then you know the thrust of the book. You know the, the feel of what he's trying to say. And you have a, an overall picture. So that's important. This evening, you know, we have tended to believe in church that work was the result of the fall. You know, God brought a curse, you remember that? And, uh, and we've tended to think that work is the curse. So that one day we won't have to work. But let me just inform you about something. The first person who works in the Bible is God. And as you sang, he still's working. Jesus said, John 5.17, my father has been working until now, and now I myself am working. And what were they working at? Well, that's what we're going to have a look at in Ephesians in a moment. But they were working to restore on earth what Adam lost. They were working to bring down the illegitimate authority structures that had seized Adam's frailties, weakness, and rebellion, and usurped a position. And Jesus, with God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, worked together to tear down the forces of darkness and to bring a new community about over a period of 3,000 years. 
two and a half thousand years, right? So God has been working. And believe it or not, he's still working. Because even though he has, if you like, had the D-Day breakthrough, Jesus has come. He has established boot camp, base camp here on earth. It is your job and mine to finish the task by the power of his Holy Spirit working in and through us and through the relationship that we have in him and he in us. Right? So, I'm going to read just a few verses from Ephesians chapter 2 in Tom Wright's version, and then I'm going to go through into chapter 3, because that's another thing that we tend to do. You read a chapter and then you stop. You think, oh, I've done that for the day, that's good, that's my Bible reading for the moment, and then you come back the next... But you, then you don't get the context of, of how, actually, the, all the chapters and the verses, they weren't there in the original, you know that. We've added them later. So when Paul wrote the letter, he didn't kind of stop and have an artificial break at the end of chapter 2. He, his, the theme of chapter 2 carries on straight into chapter 3. So I, I'm going to read through, to, through a section of chapter 3. Right? Verse 19. This is the result. And he's talking in the first section about Jesus' salvation and working in us and who we are in Christ, and that is the great theme of chapter 1, six things that we have in him. And then he, he says, as a result of all of this wonderful salvation that Jesus has brought, and his living within us, and us in him, you are no longer foreigners or strangers. Have you ever felt a foreigner? You're not a foreigner. I don't care where you're from. You may feel it, and other people may feel, make you feel estranged and different. Uh, Jesus has brought us into one single family. Isn't that wonderful? Not many families, one family. So you are no longer foreigners or strangers. You are fellow citizens with God's holy people. You are members of God's household. You are built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Now, I, I could say a load of things here, but the apostles, primarily the apostles, the New Testament disciples, apostles of the Lamb, the, the 12 of them, which included now, you know, Matthias, but then also Paul was added to that list. And the prophets he's referring to, primarily the prophets of the Old Testament who spoke of and prepared the way for Christ and his coming and all that he was going to accomplish. And with Je King Jesus himself as the cornerstone, in him the whole building is fitted together and grows into a holy temple in the Lord. You too are being built together in him into a place where God will live by his spirit. So that's where we're heading. A temple where God can live by his spirit and where each one of us, because we've been fitted and chosen, we've been marked out and prepared for a special place, have, have our role, have our part, and are together built into a dwelling. It is because of all this that I, Paul, the prisoner of King Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, have you, have you ever noticed that twice in this book, he doesn't say Paul the prisoner of Rome. 
He knows who's put him there. So regardless of your circumstance, you've got to know who's put you there. And when you lose sight, if you lose sight of who's put you there, well, then you become a prisoner of Rome or your circumstance or your struggles or your lack of job or whatever it is. But Paul knew who'd put him there. And later on in the book, he calls himself an ambassador in chains. I know I represent the king. I'm his ambassador, but this is where he's... This is the country he's called me to be in right now, this prison. Well, it was a house, really, but that was fine. But he had Roman soldiers continually keeping him company and guarding him. He was in chains, chained to a soldier. So he says, I, Paul, prisoner of King Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, I'm assuming, by the way, that you've heard about the plan of God's grace that was given to me to pass on to you, you know, the secret purpose that God revealed to me as I write briefly just now. So that he's referring to another book, probably Colossians, or possibly one that is also mentioned in Colossians, to Laodicea. But that might have been the book we are studying now. We don't really know because we're not quite sure uh, of all the details. But that's not uh, essential. Anyway, when you read this, you'll be able to understand the special insight I have into God's, into the king's secret, or the mystery, as in some of your translations. That's when that wasn't made known to human beings in previous generations, but now has been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. The secret is this, that through the gospel, the Gentiles are to share Israel's inheritance. Isn't that wonderful? We're to share Israel's inheritance. And what was Israel's inheritance? In you, all the nations will be blessed. That's the inheritance. That's where it started. In Genesis 12, with Abraham. Right? So you have to see the big picture here. This is what God's restoring, a people who will be a blessing to the nations. Right? Now, where have we got to? Verse 6. The secret is this, that the gospel, through the gospel, the Gentiles are to share Israel's inheritance. They are to become fellow members of the body along with them and fellow sharers of the promise in King Jesus. This is the gospel that I was appointed to serve in line with the free gift of God's grace that was given to me and it was backed up with the power through which God accomplishes this work. I am the very least of all God's people. However, he gave me this task as a gift, that I should be the one to tell the Gentiles the good news of the king's wealth. Wealth no one can begin to count. My job is to make clear to everyone just what is the secret plan, the, what the secret plan is, the purpose that has been hidden from the beginning, from the beginning of the world in God who created all things. This is it, that God's wisdom, in all its rich variety, was to be made known 
to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places through the church. So that's all the authorities and powers in the entire world other than God himself. We are to make known who God is and God's purpose and God's plan to all spiritual, invisible, and visible authorities. Right? This is God's eternal purpose, and he has accomplished it in King Jesus, our, Messiah, our Lord. We have confidence and access to God in him in full assurance through his faithfulness. So I beg you, don't lose heart because of my sufferings on your behalf. That is your glory. Right. Now, praise the Lord. Let's just uh, clear my decks here a little bit. Thanks, mate. <coughs> um, what, what I want to do this morning, and I, because Carol's asked me to share, Andrew and Carol asked me to share on this, on this subject. You know, I, initially, I, I, I was told to preach on Galatians. <laughs> and, you know, I, I'm, I'm a dutiful servant here. So I went out and bought a commentary on Galatians and read it. And then I was told, now you're going to preach on Ephesians. So I went out and bought another one. <laughs> and, and initially she said, I want you to do an introduction and chapter one. And I said, how long have I got? I, wouldn't, I might need five hours for that. She said, no, 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 no. Well, then you just do the introduction. So that is wonderful. So that's what I'm doing. And what I want to do is I, I, want, to give, I want to give you a bit of an understanding of who Paul was. Right? That's number one. Because it, indisputably he was the author. There have been one or two theologians who've questioned that in recent times, but really only relatively recently in history. Uh, the reason why they question it, because it's written in something of a different style to all his other letters, so there was some question. But all the, you know, all those who I would trust and respect as theologians believe that Paul was the author. And, and, but we don't know really who it was written to. You, you, you have in Ephesus, in the first verse of the book, saints in Ephesus. But in the earliest, some of the earliest manuscripts in Ephesus wasn't there. Right? So we, we're not completely sure who it was written to. Because the parallel letter that was almost certainly written at identical period that Paul refers to, that I wrote to you earlier in brief, right, is, is col probably Colossians, in which he discusses some of the similar themes. But he also refers to the fact that in that book that he had written to the Laodiceans. And Colossae, Laodicea, and Ephesus were three cities in the Lysus Valley, which is a, a river that runs through Asia Minor. And, and Paul had based himself in one of them and while he was there in Ephesus for two and a half years, and while he was there, the entire region of Asia Minor was reached with the gospel. So this was, we don't know exactly how many people, but it was approaching a million people all heard the gospel in a three-year period, right? And, and Paul writes to the Colossians, even though he never went there. One of his disciples, Epaphras, took the message of the gospel to the church to the people of Colossae. And, and he, wrote, he wrote a letter to the Laodiceans, which we don't have now, unless it is this letter that we are you going to be looking at, which we call to the Ephesians, right? 
I hope I've made myself reasonably clear on that. So we're going to have a look a little bit about Paul's life. Then we're going to have a look at an introduction to and an overview of Ephesians and what it's all about. And, and then I, I will come back to this section that I have read and, and just make some closing preachy points, all right, because I've been asked to teach you, and I find that kind of little stifling at times, but we'll do our best. So, you know, you have to bring people to a point of decision, and, you know, just giving them information is wonderful, but you want, you want it to be driven into their spirits by the hammer of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Pile drive into your hearts. Amen. Right, so, Paul, <coughs> look, in my personal opinion, when the apostles made the decision to find a, try and replace Judas, they were a little ahead of the gun. Because um, they, they, they chose a bloke by lot. You remember that? Because they didn't have the Holy Spirit yet, so they were a little bit clueless about how to hear from God at that point in time because you know, the word had been taken away from them and they were waiting for another word to come, the Holy Spirit. So they, they resorted to an Old Testament practice <coughs> and they chose a the bloke. But I think God was already preparing a man to fill Judas's place. And Paul, Paul was, without question, the, the, the most remarkable early church leader that there was. We have more written about him than any other character in the New Testament, with the exception of Jesus. He wrote much of it himself, 13 letters, and ha more than half of the book of Acts is written about Paul and his life. And by and large, what you would have picked up, you would have gleaned from Acts, but you've got to read more than Acts to understand Paul's life. You've got to read uh, chunks of where he shares his testimony in other places, especially the book of Galatians. It's very important because he shares details of his life in that in the early part of Galatians, which, uh, which are, are vital for our understanding. Because he, he, he begins to talk about, how, about his gospel and what was this and where did he get it from and, and how come that he called it his gospel, right? Because we would tend to think that it was Jesus' gospel, right? But he, he had something that uh, he was given that none of the other apostles quite saw at the time that he saw it, right? And it, and it consisted of a number of important things that actually completely changed our message and the understanding of the people who had followed Jesus for those three years. So Paul, well, he, as I say, he, he, much of the New Testament was written by him or about him. And so the only other character that we know more about is, is Jesus himself, who had the Gospels written about him and then continual references to who he is and his voice and what part he plays now and what he did to accomplish salvation on our behalf. And uh, let me just say this. I, you know, I, I've been really just kind of challenged and exercised in my own heart in recent years because I've realized that much of what I believed was only a small portion of the truth. Let me just give you one example. We've got a number of different theories of what Jesus did when he died. Theories of the atonement. 
And the one we've come to tend to believe is very personal and individualistic and was actually brought to us in a time of great change and turmoil in the church in the 16th century in the Reformation, where there was a need, a very great need, to bring back an understanding of individual salvation to the church because it had been lost. It had been lost in law works, it had been lost in church structure, it had been lost in, 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 in the capacity of the individual to engage with God personally because they had been separated from the word, which because the Bible was all in Latin and most of them didn't speak the language. So they had an intermediary priesthood which shouldn't have been there. And God had to come in and bring an intervention to return people to a, an understanding that Jesus had died for them. But actually... The message of the atonement and what Jesus accomplished is not only about what he did for you. Jesus did not die to save a bunch of individuals and take them to heaven one day. He died to bring a new society, lock, stock, and barrel, and to up turn upside down the world in which he lived by demonstrating and living a fundamentally different set of values and ways of going about things, bringing the life of heaven to earth in healing, in miracles, in, in transformation of persons' hearts and lives, but also in living out a fundamentally different way of understanding governance, authority, and power. And so we have to get back to a, a grasping that actually our theories of the atonement are only 400 years old and what you were brought up on. Yes. Before that, for 1,100 years of church history, the primary understanding of the atonement was the Christus Victor idea, which is, means Christ is victorious. And he came to destroy the works of the devil. Not just take away your sin or pardon your life, but to destroy all the works of the devil and to remove any vestige of power that he had in his hand and return it to those who could carry it responsibly, which are those who lived like Jesus, who are not corrupted by power and wealth and position. Right? So, so we have to understand that Jesus didn't just die to save people from sin and get them to heaven one day. He died to totally transform the authority structures, seen and unseen, of this world. And to raise up a community that could live differently. Because they have found something of his life in their hearts. They have seen his faithfulness to Father's instruction. And they've embraced his servant heart and attitude and surrender and death and resurrection, they believe and they now become a part of a wider citizenry. Right? So Paul, let me not rush ahead too quickly here, had three fundamental influences in his life. He was born in Tarsus. Now Tarsus was 
one of three academic centers in the, West, in the Mediterranean region. The third largest after Athens and Alexandria. It was a university town, a place of Greek learning. So that was a foundation in his life. Then he was a Roman citizen and had a great understanding and appreciation of Pax Romana. So there were, there were a number of wonderful things that the Romans brought, even though they were ruthless and they were ungodly, immoral. But the good thing they brought was a common law, which they rolled out across their entire empire. And Paul understood what law did and had a great appreciation for being justified before the law and what that looked like and what the law accomplished and what order it brought and that actually it helped reinforce certain values and certain behaviors in, a, in an entire empire and that that was important. But often if we fell short or we failed, there were consequences. And he understood that and translated that right into his understanding of, of what Jesus had accomplished because we fall short of what God requires of us, not only as individuals, but as communities. And what does Jesus do to restore and to justify and to make whole so that their law has no judgment against you? Right? So that was second th influence in Paul's life. The third was that he was a Jew. And he was educated by one of the leading rabbis of the era, Gamaliel. Now, if you were a Pharisee and a Jew, and you were chosen by a rabbi, a top rabbi, to be discipled and mentored, it meant certain things that you had already done. You had already had to have learnt the Torah by the time you were 12. That's the first five books of the Bible. Then for you to have been taken... By, uh, to, to study further, you would go and live in a synagogue or in a, a place of learning, and you would learn the rest of the Old Testament by heart. And then uh, you were chosen for your aptitude and for your passion by a rabbi. He would then teach you rabbinic teachings from the entire biblical Old Covenant period, and he would disciple and mentor you. So all of these things were a part of Paul's history. So we learn from Paul that God chooses the man for the call. He doesn't choose the call to fit the person. <laughs> right? Just remember that. This is rather important. Because he calls, he calls you and he prepares you for what that calling is. And that preparation isn't always straightforward. So in Paul's life, he starts out on his journey, and you know the beginnings of his life. He's passionate. He's zealous. He was said, I was zealous for my people. I was zealous for the law. And he was, he was persecuting the church, which is why he calls himself the least of the apostles, because I persecuted the church. And so he, he, he's on his way with letters of authority to Damascus to imprison believers, bring them back to Jerusalem and, you know, make an example of them. And he has this sovereign encounter, which was the first of a number 
from what we can gather. And he, he hears the words of Christ and sees him. In the Golan Heights, have you heard of the Golan Heights? They're in North Israel, right? Jews took them back in the seven-day war from, from Syria. And, uh, and so Paul was walking through the Golan Heights village, and that's where God meets him. And he, he is introduced to the one he's persecuting. And it is a sovereign change. And then he, 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 he's led into Damascus. And Ananias is sent to, to, to him. And he, and he says, God says to Ananias, this is my servant. I've called him. I've chosen him. I have appointed him an apostle to the Gentiles. And I will show him how much he must suffer for my sake. Right? That was also part of the call. Right? So don't ask for Paul's anointing <laughs> too quickly. Right? So the next thing that happens is that he, he immediately changes his message. He suddenly says, I've suddenly realized some things about this Messiah that I've been persecuting. And he, he starts preaching, but he gets into trouble, and they have to let him down out of a, out of a window in a basket so he can escape. And uh, so Acts tells us that he goes to Jerusalem, but that actually isn't the case. It was one of those kind of divine pauses. There's a three-year gap between him, go, him leaving Damascus and him going to Jerusalem. So he, he then goes, Paul, if you read Galatians, you'll see that he was sent away by the Spirit to Arabia. And know anybody else who was sent to the desert? Jesus was sent to Desmond, wasn't he? Yeah. He was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. They're, they're, they're always going to be times like that in our lives, and they're very valuable. So he goes into the wilderness, and he gets n more downloads from the Holy Spirit in the wilderness in those three years as he's processing this message and what God is actually calling him to preach. And then he eventually gets back to Damascus and then to Jerusalem. And, and he says, he, in another place, that he had a trance in the temple. And then, you know, when he gets all of this, and this is what I love about Paul, he doesn't then, uh, he doesn't then kind of advertise, I'm going to do seminars on trances and going to heaven. I want, I want a big audience, let's have a workshop on you know, third heaven encounters. Anybody want to sign up for that? Yeah. No, he, 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 he doesn't directly refer to himself very much. So he says, I knew a man who had. He puts it all in the third person because he doesn't want to brag about it. And he doesn't want people following him just because of the experiences. He wants people following the one he's seen. Amen. So, so Paul, he has these encounters and, he, and his message then was formed out of that which he saw and heard. That's why he calls it my gospel. And it's not because it wasn't Jesus' gospel, but many of the other disciples weren't quite on the same page yet. Peter was one of them. We, we, we see dear old Peter, he was great. But he, he's down there in Joppa. Right? And he's hungry and he's about to have lunch. And 
He goes up, you know, to have a bit of a rest before lunch because he's, you know, it's been a busy schedule and he's raised a few people from the dead and, you know, it's been, a, it's been an active time. And, and um, so he, he, he sees these visions. You remember, that's in Acts 10. And, and, you know, but he doesn't see them in Jerusalem. Because if he had been with his mates back in Jerusalem and said, I had this vision, they, said, they would have said, that can't be God. How can God be including the Gentiles? Right? But he has to take Peter away, and then he has to do another incredible miracle. He has to speak to Cornelius. And Cornelius has already now sent this delegation to go and find Peter. So just as Peter's questioning, this is, what, what's going on here, Lord? I, I, I've never eaten anything unclean. I don't touch that which is not chosen of you. And of course, you've got to remember that by now the Jews have added all kinds of extra laws to separate themselves from everybody else. So it's no longer the Jews being a blessing to the nations. They just want God to be a blessing to them. That's a bit of a problem. Because that's too frequently our problem. Lord, we pray for revival as long as it starts here. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> and if it starts somewhere else, well, then what do we do? You know, we get upset. Because, you know, he didn't hear our prayer. <laughs> right? You know, so anyway, so Peter, he, he, go, he, he goes with these guys, and he goes and st he's preaching, you know, in Cornelius' house. He goes and stays there, and you know the story. But in my personal opinion, it was more difficult for God to speak to Peter than it was for God to speak to Cornelius. That is the spirit of religion. It can blind us completely to what God wants to do. So Paul, he sees through all of this. And his message was quite straightforward. He calls it a mystery in different places. There are 17 mysteries in the New Testament. It's a good idea to write them down, to read them and study them and think about them. Because a mystery is something that God hides that he wants the wise to seek out. Right? So, <coughs> one of the mysteries he talks about in Colossians is Christ in you, the hope of glory. But the mystery he mentions here in Ephesians is the mystery of God bringing together Jew and Gentile into one new people, to one new society, to one new community. So there were aspects of Paul's message that were far ahead of their time and his commissioning before God to the Gentiles and to kings. I, I've often thought about that. I'm sure you have too, Carol. You know. He gets all these words about not going to Jerusalem. He ignored them all. When you receive a word, it doesn't mean you need to immediately do it. Why did Paul ignore the words? They were all warning him not to go to Jerusalem. 
He had a number of them from different people in different towns, finally ending with the prophet of the New Testament, Agabus, who, who said, don't do it. And he grabs Paul's belt and binds up his own hands and says, this is what they're going to do to you. I mean, you can't get much more direct than that. But Paul says, forget it, I'm going. Because I know I'm called to Caesar. Because I want to preach the word to him. That's why he knew he was a prisoner of Christ Jesus. So God knows everything and will often reveal to his prophets things that are true, but they're not necessarily for you. And you have to weigh them in your heart against all the other things you know that God's called you to be. So Paul starts out his journey and God says, I've called this man to stand before kings and emperors and to the Gentiles and to suffer for my sake. That's it's challenging, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. I, I don't know what to do with that sometimes myself, you know, to be quite frank. I, you know, I'm just very grateful when God speaks to me about it through anyone. <laughs> <You know? laughs> and I tended to immediately grab everything they say. But sometimes he wants me to put the things on one side and ponder them. So Paul, not just from our understanding, but from the early church fathers, was recognized as the standout apostle. And it really was through his life and ministry and the beginnings of what he accomplished and the communities that he started and the, the way they lived their lives and the, the way they served the lost and cared for the broken and took people who were dying into their own homes and, and, and buried those who had been killed and murdered in the streets in the debauched life of Rome and gave them a proper funeral and a proper burial. He, they, they, they changed an empire. They changed an empire. And it was really through Paul's message and the way he lived his life and the communities that he helped build and establish. So let's have a look quickly at Ephesians. Now, <coughs> let me just say this. We, we, we have numerous ways we communicate these days. It's, it's gone beyond me completely. You know, I, I can manage internet, but I stumble over Facebook. I kind of glimpse at one every now and again about what people say and don't do and but I spend about one minute a week looking at that. And, <coughs> and, uh, and, and you know, we've, that doesn't, you know, I don't reach to Twitter, forget it. Just don't, just don't go there, no, you know. So I, I, I just don't go there. But Paul had no means of communicating other than letters. But in those days, and those of you who kind of, you know, came off the ark with Noah like me, um, that, that, you know, we, we, we know that like 30 years ago, you used to write letters and you could post them and then they would get to the destination. I mean, in Britain, we're, we're really fortunate. I can send a letter first class and I know it will get them to 90% of the time, they'll get to the destination the next morning, you know, 24 hours, they, they get it there. Um, so, so we can write letters, but in those days, you didn't have a postal service. So if you wrote a letter, you had to pay for someone to take it there. 
So uh, really, only a very few people wrote letters. Officials in the empire wrote letters. Many of the letters we have are accounts and things that people are sending to, to, to remind them, you know, things that they are buying or bought, purchases, um, and, and, or, or judgments, edicts, decisions, br brief, one sheet. And again, the paper was expensive. It was beaten reed papyrus. You know, quite a lot of hours go into making papyrus, parchment. So Paul, he, he wrote some of the longest letters that we have from any source. And because of, of the men he worked with and the communities he established, he had, he had folk who, who would serve the process of him take, of getting those letters to the people he was wanting to send them to. But they had to go by boat. And Ephesians and Colossians and Philippians, he was in prison. You know, on the other side of the Adriatic Sea. So, <laughs> so you know, they've either got a long journey walk around or they're going to get a boat. So somebody's got to pay for the boat trip. You know, and they've got to stay somewhere. You know, every now, you know they can't be expected, you know, they didn't have aeroplanes, remember. They walked. Okay, so they went, walked and went by boat. So they, they had stayed places and they had to have food and they had to eat and they, and they were entrusted with this precious document. Romans is one of the longest letters we have from any New Testament, from the New Testament period from any source. It's over 7,000 words. And so we've we got to understand that this was, this was a strategy that Paul deliberately adopted to communicate the word of God to people and to bring, continue to remind people of the word that God had given him. And there are three types of letter that we have written in the New Testament. There are what are called occasional documents, or occasional letters, and they were written to, to, to in response to a particular situation. So Paul is somewhere and he gets wind of, or hears from, the church in Corinth that there are some problems. And here's about specific problems. There's disunity, they're taking each other to court, there's immorality, and he writes a letter based on that occasion, on the news he's just heard. And he addresses those particular issues. So this wasn't a general letter of theology or idea of, 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 God's, of Paul's ideas about things. This was answering particular issues that were he was encountering and trying to correct in the practice and behavior of a church, right? The second type of letters he wrote were pastoral. So they were letters to people he were, were, who were carrying a responsibility and a part of his team or a, a community that were particularly on the heart of, of, of one of the apostles. So John, second and third John, they are pastoral letters written to an elder in a community. So it went to the whole community, not just to the elder, and, and, and it was expressing a care and a concern for issues within that, that, past, that community as a whole. Not based on any particular thing, but their role and the, the parts that they were playing. So Timothy was a pastoral letter. So Paul writes to Timothy, who's in Ephesus, and he had placed him there, and it's this dynamic ministry center with tens of thousands of people coming, touching Christ in the area of the whole of Asia Minor. 
and riots had taken place and all kinds of upheavals going on because of the gospel, because of a new community being built here, a new society being established, and the principalities and powers in that region being shaken. Now, here's an aside for you. In case you think we live in a world of crisis, <laughs> we do. <laughs> we're, we're faced a number of crises, and they're only going to continue, in my view. We've had a financial crisis, and we've tried to kind of put a you know, an elastic band, <laughs> elastoplast over the top of that. <laughs> that hasn't really got away. That's just kind of under the surface. We've got a political crisis. Don't tell me, you know, Mr. Trump and Mr. Johnson aren't and Brexit aren't creating a few political crises. We're, we've got a climate crisis, which we're beginning to come to terms with. But that's really problematic, because we, we can't really resolve that in South Africa alone. Right? So some of these crises are not, not within the capacity of a single nation or big business to deal with. They're global. You know, 10 of the hottest ever years on record. I mean, like records go back in Britain to the 1850s. So 10 of the hottest years on record, the 10 hottest years, have happened since the year 2000. Last year was the hottest of them all. So we've, these crises are only going to continue. So we live in a world in chaos and in turmoil, and as Ephesus was after Paul got there, and he began to shake things through his message and his ministry. So when you see these things, don't be alarmed, Matthew 24 says. Recognize that heaven is coming to earth, and you're a part of the answer, not a part of the problem, and don't be overwhelmed by the difficulties, because God is equipping you in your sphere, limited or broad, to make a difference. Amen? Because you're bringing heaven to earth too, and you're part of a new society that God is raising up to demonstrate something more of who he is. So the final type of letter that there was, this, that's the second is pastoral. Third is general or circular letters. And these were sent to a group of people in a, in a region rather than to a single individual. And we know that Ephesus, the book of Ephesians was one such because there are no personal greetings in this book at all. And this was strange because all of Paul's other letters have some personal greetings in them of one form or another, even to places he hasn't been. So he greets a lot of folk in Rome, and he never had been there. He was writing that as kind of his CV. <laughs> it's quite a CV, isn't it, really? But he was writing Romans as his CV to outline some of his ideas and his doctrines for the church in Rome because he was planning to get there. He was a couple of years late because of his kind of interruption in Jerusalem, but he, he did eventually make it, all right? So he, 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 wrote, he, he wrote Ephesians, and there are no personal greetings, even though he knew people there, because he had lived there for three years, okay? So he, he was writing this letter to a broad area, and we think, a theologian think, that it was written to the entire region of Asia Minor, and to be passed round and Colossians was written particularly for that community in the Lysus Valley that I've mentioned. But effort, the book of Ephesians was to be passed to the entire region. And that's why he didn't have personal references in it, because it wouldn't have made any sense to many of the people who were going to read it. So that, that he, he wrote this letter 
outlining some of his understanding of the gospel. Partly personal, but mostly taking it from what God does in the heart of the individual to helping us understand what, what God wants to do in community, that he's establishing a new society. Now, the passage that I read to you, well, let me give you the main themes. Main, three main themes of the book of Ephesians. New society, which has been created in and through Christ. New standards of living, which God expects his new society to live by. Strong emphasis on unity and on purity. God wants us to learn to be united, to celebrate difference, to be excited about diversity and difference, and he wants us to be uh, pure and keep ourselves upright so that our lives can be a model of something fundamentally different. Then uh, new, new relationships, and all of these are different sections of the book. The first new society is chapters 1 to to 2.10, uh, new standards, chapter 4 and 5, and new relationships into which God has brought us, living in harmony at home, hostility towards the devil, that's 5.21 to 6.12. So, so these are three of the principal themes. The first half of the book looks at myself, my relationship to Christ, who he's brought, he's brought me into, who I am in him, who he is in me, what that means, and who he's connected me with, that he's bringing me together in this new community, this new society to demonstrate heaven on earth. So look at it this way. When the Allies in 1944 sent an army over the channel to, to, to Normandy, we call that D-Day, right? They established a bridgehead. Do you know how long it took them to reach Berlin? A year. Right? Now, if the generals had gone home after establishing the bridgehead and said, well, we're finished now. <laughs> we'll, wait till, we'll wait till somebody else comes and saves the day. Then we'd be kind of like the church. Oh, we've got saved. We're waiting for heaven to come. We'll sit around and watch the world go to rot. No, we've got a job to do, to enforce the victory that Jesus has won, to establish a new society with a new way of doing things, which fundamentally overthrows everything that's gone before. So, and I, there, it's impossible for me to, to, to really deal with this in the time that I've got, but let me just, when Jesus came, he, was, he usurped all and Paul, five minutes, okay. They, they, they completely undermined everything that Rome stood for. Because the emperor, Caesar, was called the peacemaker. He brought peace, Pax Romana. But who did Jesus say he was? The bringer of peace. Caesar was saviour because he brought that peace. What name did Jesus give himself? The church calls him Lord. What did the Roman Romans call the emperor? Lord. 
He rides in on a donkey, whereas Titus comes into Jerusalem on a white horse with an imperial guard. Because Jesus is totally, deliberately turning upside down all the authority and political structures, and the New Testament church did exactly the same. They even called themselves church. That was revolutionary. Because the church, in Roman times, were the upstanding citizens in a city that governed it. They were the free men, the landowners, the lawyers, who weren't in debt, who's who weren't in disrepute in any way, who were upstanding citizens and they governed the city. That was the church. Acts 17, Acts 19. Paul in Ephesus again. You know, they have this riot. The, the mayor says, if there's any other matter, bring it to the church. He's not talking about Paul's church. He's talking about the Ephesian church, which was the upstanding citizens who would govern the matter. And apostles. I can go on. But they were a Roman official who was sent by Caesar to establish a mini-Rome in new nations that they had conquered and captured. And he would come with a team. An apostolic team, it was called with city planners and le law legal specialists. And they would, architects, and they would lay out a new city modeled on Rome in the nation they were conquering. So the church deliberately takes on terms which Rome uses to say we are a counterculture. So, beloved, I started with, and I'm going to take two more minutes, Carol. I started with temple. We are this being built into this temple. You have been chosen, you've been shaped, and you've been placed in the temple. That's what choosing means. You're a living stone. You've been chosen, shaped for a task, and placed in the temple. Now, where does temple come from? You know where temple comes from. It's Old Testament talk, isn't it? Because God wants to dwell amongst his people. And it goes back to Genesis 1 and 2 and a garden. You know, unless, we, unless we keep the stories of the scripture within the bookends of the Bible, beloved, you're going you're gonna to be confused. Because Genesis 1 starts in a garden. God makes Adam, places him in a garden. What's in the garden? A tree's in the garden. There are trees in the garden. There's a river in the garden. Right? And he presences himself. God comes down into that garden. And he tabernacles with Adam. And then out of, out of Adam he brings Eve. And so he has family in the garden. Right? And there's life in the garden. And then re Adam rebels. And he's driven out of the garden. So the rest of the story of the Bible is how God brings us back to a garden. Because Revelation 21, 22, well, you have a new city coming down out of heaven. But then you have a river, and you have trees, and you have a garden. 
because now the family has become a city. Right? The family's become a city. And so it's how God restores the garden. It's the story of the Bible. In everything. So what happens on earth is as God wants it to be, as it is in heaven. Right? So the, f- the story goes like this. You have God calling a man, Abraham, who has a family, because Genesis is about God finding a family and choosing a family. Because in that family, all the nations, not just Israel, all the nations of the world will be blessed. Right? Got it? And so one of those family members, Jacob, he's running away from his brother. There's conflict in this family. He's running away from his brother, and he's sleeping out there in the wilderness on a stone. And what happens while he's asleep? He has this dream. And what is the dream? A connection between heaven and earth, a ladder. And the angels are ascending and descending because they're already here, because they're seeking to change this world so it can become a garden again. Right? And Jacob wakes up. He sees this incredible vision. God gives him the same promise as his grandfather Abraham. In you all the nations of the world will be blessed. And he says, this is not Luz, which was the former name of this town. It's Bethel, the house of God, because God is coming down amongst men again and dwelling here, and we're finding a place for him. And it's in my roots, in my life, in my lineage, in my call, in my destiny, that this is going to happen. I don't know how, but it's going to happen. So then we have Moses making a tabernacle. What was the purpose of that? So that God could dwell with his people, right? And the temple, Solomon, God could dwell with his people. But we all know that it's not, God's not going to dwell in a physical structure because who does he dwell in? He dwells in the hearts of people. And he's given mankind the responsibility of governance of this earth, which is why Jesus had to come as man rather than as some kind of edict from God. And so we follow. We follow that heart. And we are now built into the new temple so that we can be citizens of a new kingdom and we can transform and turn over the structures of this world because Jesus died to destroy them. And we must raise up the alternative. Amen.